All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead, you keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. My guest today is Dr. Cesar Hidalgo. He is a statistical physicist at MIT, where he leads the collective learning group at the MIT Media Lab and teaches as an associate professor. He joins me today to discuss his most recent book, Why Information Grows, The Evolution of Order from Atoms to Economies, and its lessons and implications for the public and policymakers, if any. Uh, Cesar, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, um, I guess if anyone's had a, a, even an introductory econ class, the kinds of things they talk about in these classes, you know, labor, capital, land, your book is not about that stuff. You have sort of a different model for thinking about uh, economies. And I think at the core of this model are, 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 are not capital and labor, but other things, matter, energy, information. Just explain that model and give me some, what are the insights that model provides that perhaps the traditional economic model does not? Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, what I present in Why Information Grows is not that far from traditional economics, but traditional economics understood as like post-Romer 1990, when economists finally figure out that knowledge, not capital, not technology by itself, not labor or land, was the ultimate factor of production that allowed economic growth. So in some way, the book, what it tries to do is to try to connect across multiple scales this idea that what we have is a duality between information or physical order, things that we get to do, and our ability to do them, which is the knowledge that we accumulate and that we learn collectively. So the book is about like this dance between knowledge and information, you know, and it helps us understand and it helps us understand what economic growth is and where it comes about. Right. And, and again, I think maybe we'll just start, just make sure we, you know, we uh, understand the sorts of terms that you'll re be referring to, the most important of which is the one that's in the title of the book, which is information. I think when most people think about information, they think about something like, you know, E equals MC squared. That's a bit of information. Uh, another piece of, you know, the team that's won the most World Cups, that's, that's information. But that's not really what you're talking about when you use the word information. Yeah, exactly. So the word information is, is used differently in different technical fields. You know? uh, and in physics, it basically is used to refer to physical order. You know? And this is a very interesting concept because uh, physics, you know, which is a very basic science, like has dealt with you know, matter, which is kind of like what things are made of. Then it deals with things like you know, energy or velocity, which is kind of like a property of matter maybe moving around. But then there's something else, which is how things are ordered or arranged. And that's interesting because it's a different property. Like if you take a deck of cards and you shuffle it, you don't change the mass, you don't change the energy, but you change sort of the information that it contains. And the creativity of our universe and of our economy depends on our ability to create information, to change the way in which things are ordered. In the book, actually, I say you know, that the big difference between the world that we have today and the world that we had 100,000 years ago is not the atoms that are available in our planet. Those are all the same. The right. only thing that has changed is the way in which we have arranged them and also our ability to arrange them. The first thing, how we have arranged them, that's information, that's physical order that you can use to transmit a message. 
you know, right. also, but not only to transmit a message. And the second thing is the knowledge. It's our ability to create physical order. The example of, uh, of the automobile, the, the Bugatti, I believe. Yep. Uh, what, what, what if you could just kind of, that's, that's a, it's a very sort of powerful, uh, you know, illustration of, of, of the concept of, of information. What if you could just walk, walk through it for a second? So uh, a few years ago, I was reading a local newspaper back from Chile, which is where I come from. And there was this news article that said that there was this guy that had bought the world's most expensive car. Okay? So I click on the news and it says that that car is a Bugatti Veyron. At that time, that car was priced at about like $2.4 million. So it's a very expensive vehicle. And basically, one of the things that you can do is you can grab you know, that value of the car, the $2.4 million that it costs, and divide it by its weight and figure out how much does a kilo of Bugatti cost. You know, and it costs you thousands of dollars. It costs you more than silver and a little bit less than gold. You know, it's very expensive. So now you imagine that you grab that car, you just won it on the lottery, you're really excited, you drive it down a country road, and you make a mistake and you end up crashing it against a wall and the car is completely destroyed. Well, you destroy the value of the car, but all of the atoms are there. You know, the atoms were not destroying that crash. So what that tells you is that you destroy the information, you destroy the order of the atoms, the way that they were arranged. And by doing that, you destroy the value. And that helps you understand that there might be an important connection between our ability to create these very unique combinations of order and economic value. You know? So that's what that example is about. And that's what economies do, is that economies create, and they're not, not just economies, because as you go in the book, information can also be created by other sorts of entities, but that uh, in this case, an economies create information, which is sort of comp complex arrangements of atoms. Exactly. And you can think that in some way, like if you want to think a way of economists, think of a cell, you know, a cell is also like a, like a little, you know, engine that uses energy that is consuming uh, to go against the second law of thermodynamics to create order, you know, uh, and is creating that order, for instance, in the manufacturing of proteins, you know, uh, as it reads DNA and creates the proteins that the cell needs to do different functions. So in some way, like what, what I, I try to explain is that this idea that we're consuming energy to create order and that our ability to create order depends on our ability to create the small agglomerations of systems that actually consume energy to create order and defy the tendency of the universe to create disorder is something that is quite universal. It happens right. in the cell. Trees. trees. I mean, trees, I mean, trees create information, right? Like, like trees also, of course, are consuming energy from the sun, you know, they're capturing carbon from the air, and they're using that carbon that they capture from the air, you know, to build themselves, you know. And a tree is uh, a system that, uh, by definition, uh, from a statistical perspective, has lower entropy than the rest of the environment. That's why eventually then you can burn the tree and get fuel out of it. Because the tree is a little engine that is also going against this second law of thermodynamics, the same as you and me, or the same as a biological cell. You consume energy to create order. And that's kind of like a fundamental property that you see in biological systems, but also in social systems. Again, just to make sure I'm using the terms the, way, the same way that you use them or, or to explain them. So in the book, when you talk about computation, is computation then... Uh, the sort of the turning of matter or these ingredients into information. Is that what we mean by computation? In, in the book, yes. I, like what you have to be careful about is that a lot of people tend to think of computation only in very modern terms 
meaning that they think that it's analogy to the physical computer. Right. But you have to understand that the physical computer that we have nowadays, these digital computers that we use in our phones or in our desktops, you know, are just the modern instantiation of an older idea. This idea that we can compute or there are systems that can compute is something that is extremely, extremely old. You know, it's simply having something that consumes energy on the one hand to produce order on the other hand. Where that energy is coming from an electric outlet and what you're producing, you know, is a string of numbers on the other hand, or what you're doing is taking energy from the sun, like in the case of the tree, to, you know, produce the different proteins that, that give the tree its structure, you know, it's something that would be anecdotal. What really you have are the systems that are computing, meaning consuming energy to produce order. Right. And I'm, I'm just going to ask, I'm just going to ask you to run through sort of two other sorts of uh, uh, metaphors or examples that you use just to make sure we sort of really cement the idea. One, I, as the uh, as a father of seven, I really like this one. We talked about a delivery room. Yeah. Explain, explain that a little bit yeah. or walk through that. As I introduced the book, basically the, the book is a lot about the, the fact that like our world is, is uh, one that can generate prosperity, you know, because, you know, we have a world in which we not only consume energy to create order, we consume energy to create order that originates as imagination. Right. So our world is one that is full of all of these crystals of imagination, full of these objects that were imagined before they were built. So to illustrate that idea, I, I tell the story of the birth of my daughter, you know, and basically a child, when she's in the womb, she's going to be in, in a world that is not very different from the world that child's had in the womb, you know, hundreds of thousands years ago. But the moment that she's born, she's born into this world that is very alien and very foreign to her. You know, it's a hospital. It has electric lights. There's, you know, music that is playing. You know, there's people there with, you know, different types of, you know, instruments. There's a bed that has, you know, sheets that have been fabricated, you know, with uh, sophisticated weaving techniques on, you know, machinery and so forth. And she's coming into this world in which each and every item in that room was imagined before it was built. You know? So basically, we live in a world that is made of crystallized imagination. And a lot of what our economy does is actually try to figure out how to generate the social structures you know, that help people transform their imagination into reality. And when that imagination is useful, of course, it creates products that makes our lives more prosperous, more comfortable, and so forth. Right, and that's and that's uh, you know what I want to get into, but I'm just going to make you uh, you know give me one give me one more explanation. I also think is, is is very helpful thinking about two sort of two kinds of information in which there is physical matter uh, that is ordered is the the apple the kind you pluck off a tree versus an apple computer or an apple uh, iPod. Both apples and both kinds of information, but yet very different. Exactly. So like the apple that you eat. You know, it's a product that also uh, it's made of order. So you can burn it and you can get calories out of it. That tells you, you know, that actually, you know, it's a product with, with uh, relatively uh, little entropy. On the other hand, you have the apple that you use to call other people and to check your phone and to post pictures on Instagram and so forth. You know, and that's also a product that is also made of order. But the difference between those two products is not that one is made of order and the other one doesn't because both are made of order. It's the nature of that order or the origin. In the case of the apple that you eat, that order was honed by evolution and did not require much human intervention. Of course, you know, through agriculture, we were able to select some apples and, and, and change them a little bit, but most of what's there actually was not done by men. But when you look at the apple that you used to communicate, 
That's an apple that is technically a crystal of imagination. It's a product that did not exist until someone imagined it. And then there was a huge network of people that had to work together to transform that imagination into a reality. And as you, and, and as you were just saying, that the way, I explain it better than I can, that what your model, I think, successfully does is creating perspective, a different perspective about what an economy is. An economy for, isn't just about sort of creating consumer demand. Uh, an economy is really about sort of creating the structures so that we can turn our imagination into information. We can turn our imagination into physical order. And if you begin to think of an economy that way, well, then, you know, then there's, there, 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 you know, you can think about public policy different, lots of things differently. Do, is, is, is that sort of the, the insight that this model provides? Yeah, in part, exactly, is to put products and, the, and their uniqueness more at the center of the description of the economy. It's not just about money and demand and supply, but actually, you know, products are of very different types, are very unique, and they have very specific uses. And all of these different products with very specific uses is usually what the economy is trying to do, you know, and what we try to do together as a way to develop a more prosperous society. So what I say is that, you have information that is physical order. You can use information to communicate messages, for instance, by writing a book, but you can also use information to communicate something different than a message, which is the practical use of knowledge. Right. So for instance, when I create a simple product like, like toothpaste, you know, toothpaste is a product that has the capacity to protect your teeth against cavities. Well, communicating that capacity is something that I cannot do with words, because if I tell you about you know, sodium fluoride, and about toothpaste, I'm not gonna protect your teeth. The only way for me to protect your teeth is to figure out how to take all of that knowledge and put it in a product that can transmit its practical uses. So we live in a world in which each one of us is individually quite stupid, but we are able to live at a high level of comfort and prosperity because we access through the products that we have to all of these objects that give us the practical uses of the knowledge needed to create them and those augment our capacities. So we're all kind of like these superhumans walking around, you know, with phones that allow us to communicate, at, you know, to any part of the world, you know, uh, driving around in cars that can go at fantastic speeds compared to what our bodies could do. We fly from one part of the globe to another in less than a day, you know, not because any of those capacities is ours, but because those are capacities that we can access because information has the ability to transmit the practical uses of knowledge. And that's right. like a big part is putting the products and what they're useful for at the center of the description of the economy. Right. And you, you might have some sort of science fiction movie where theoretically I, I could download quickly into my brain uh, everything I would have to know to make toothpaste. Well, or that all that knowledge could be sort of embedded in an actual physical product. Exactly. And, that, and that is sort of another way of getting at that superpower. And so, okay, so if that's sort of the model, that's how you're sort of looking at the world. From that perspective, then how do you think about something that you write about, such as about trade? What, what is happening when two countries really trade with each other using sort of this more sort of physics-based model? Yeah. So when two countries trade, in some way, on, on, they're, they're changing products. But what really matters is the information that is being carried by those products and the practical uses of knowledge that is being carried by that information. So an example that I use in the book is that of Chile and Korea. So Chile has a very positive trade surplus with Korea, 
It exported in 2012 more than $4 billion of product to Korea. Korea exported only $2 billion of product to Chile. But Chile basically exported atoms. It exported copper ore. It exported also some you know, agricultural products to Korea. While Korea exported you know, many different types of electronics and machinery, exported cars and exported trucks and exported you know, uh, different types of displays and cell phones and so forth. So the balance of trade was in favor of Chile, you know, but the balance of imagination was in favor of Korea. Because if you think about it, the net export of culture from Chile to Korea was almost zero. Like by Chile sending copper, we're not sending any information, any culture, any practical uses of the knowledge that we have, but by Korea sending the latest design of their Samsung phones or the latest design of their Genesis car or the, or the Hyundai cars, that exporting culture information and the practical uses of their knowledge. And that balance is one that is extremely relevant to understand the differences in prosperity of the world, because at the end of the day, you know, the wealth of nations, and we know this since Romer 1990, you know, is something that has to do with you know, the knowledge that we accumulate. Knowledge is the only thing that increases eventually in per capita terms and is the one that allows us you know, to eventually become richer. And it's that knowledge and know-how put into use that allows us, it's, it's what allows us to create information. Exactly, yeah. So at the end of the day, even though the book starts being about information, it's more about knowledge because information is valuable because it can help you communicate the practical uses of your knowledge. Right. But at the end of the day, what countries and groups of people need to do is to try to accumulate that knowledge. So if you go all the way back, you know, to what matters, what really matters is not information, it's not knowledge, it's learning. It's the ability to accumulate that knowledge. And that's what I've been thinking a lot about. My next book, you know, that I'm working on right now is called How Nations Learn. That's a fantastic topic. And as you get in sort of the latter half of the book, you really talk about we talk more about sort of economies and uh, how, you know, and, and, and what sorts of economies or, or what's necessary in economy to sort of create the, 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 um, the institutions to, to, trans, to, you know, create that information. And then, you know, only an individual can only know so much. Therefore, we have to create sorts of networks of individuals. And maybe we call those networks teams. Maybe we call them companies. Maybe we call them cities. So what's really important for a country is to have those kinds of networks to create complex forms of information. So how do we create those networks? Because, you know, I, I work at a think tank, so I'm always thinking about policy, and it's not a policy book, but of course I immediately thought of, you know, what, what should countries and cities be doing to create those sorts of networks that are necessary to create information, which is really, you know, ends up being the wealth of your country. Exactly. So at the end of the day, we agree that it's all about knowledge. The problem is that knowledge is too big and humans are too stupid. So to accumulate knowledge, people need to create teams of people that can accumulate the knowledge that you need to do something useful. So to manufacture an airplane, you know, Boeing needs like the knowledge that is embodied in thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of people. The same is true for most complex economic activities. I own a software company that has more than 20 people by now. And the division of knowledge that we have already in such a small company is amazing. There's the back-end guys and there's the designers and then the front-end guys, and they all know different things. So the only way that we can accumulate knowledge meaningfully is in a social context, is in social networks. So the big challenge that societies and firms need to solve is that of like learning collectively, learning in the context of a social network. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is, well, 
what are the things that determine the sizes of the networks that people can form? Because a society that can very quickly create large networks, you know, is a society that is going to be able to learn more effectively because you need these large networks to hold lots of knowledge. If you can only form like little groups of three or four people, there's so much knowledge that these little groups are going to be able to accumulate. And if they can accumulate only little knowledge, they're going to be able to only do simple things. But if you can have large networks, like the ones that are in large firms that accumulate lots of knowledge, you can make complex things like what pharma companies do or what like big software engineering companies do or like big mechanical engineering companies like uh, aircraft uh, creators or, or, or car manufacturers can do. So what are the things that determine the ability of people to create networks? One of them is the level of trust that people have on each other and on institutions and on society. Mm -hmm. you know? So in societies that people are very distrustful, they're going to tend to form smaller networks. They're going to tend to form networks with very strong social links, but that are going to also be biased towards family members and people that they trust a priori, or they have other reasons to trust. In societies that have higher levels of trust on that hand, people can form larger networks more quickly and therefore companies can scale much faster and they can enter more sophisticated software and engineering sectors. So the idea is that at the end of the day, when you're seeing differences in the sophistication of economies, you're also seeing differences in the ability of these economies to form large collaborative structures more or less spontaneously. And those are in part driven you know, by uh, differences in the level of trust. Of course, there are many other factors. You have to have people speak the same language. If you have a language, for example, that is very small, it's going to be large to have large networks, nevertheless. You, know, you have also people have to be compatible maybe in other forms. Mm -hmm. you know, but at the end of the day, it is about forming larger networks to accumulate more knowledge so you can do more difficult things. Right. So I, I think if you ask some economists, what do you need to do to uh, produce economic growth. Maybe some would say cut taxes. Others might say get rid of regulations. Maybe some would say build more roads, something like that. But when I, when I listen to you and I read the book, what I think of as pro-growth economics is really sort of pro-connection economics, like that we, we need policies to help people connect with each other and uh, more easily and efficiently, efficiently sort of exchange information and making sure that the, sort of those, those, those people are sort of well-educated as possible. So it's sort of a different view of what, you know, instead of pro-growth economics, it's sort of pro, again, pro sort of connection economics. Yes, it's a lot of like pro-connections and pro-learning more than right. anything. So right. for instance, like a lot of economic growth here in the United States comes from a lot of like the talented migration that the U.S. receives in all of the grad school programs of the country. You know, if you go to any grad school program like in, in physics or in chemistry or computer science, at least half, you know, of the students there are going to be very talented kids, you know, from India, from China, from Western Europe, from Eastern Europe, from Latin America. And in that context, all of these talented groups of people, you know, brings together the ability to create, you know, and produce, you know, vast amounts of new knowledge that ends up, you know, becoming part of the economy a few years down the line and sometimes even quite immediately. You know? uh, so it is a very much pro, you know, learning policy. And to learn, you have to have different people interact because you don't learn from someone that is just like you. Mm -hmm. If you are next to someone that is just like you, it's impossible for you to learn because you learn from differences. You learn from being comfortable with uncomfortable differences and, you know, by trying to reconcile them, you learn. By trying to understand someone that knows something that you have no experience on, you learn. By, like, listening to someone that had a different educational background 
or different life background, you also learn. So in that context, is that like the policy implications are ones that are very much pro the movement of people because right. people are the carriers of knowledge and pro the connections of people because that knowledge only gets recombined as people get to interact. You know, so there are big policy implications. I would say even for nowadays political environment, you know, based on the simple consideration that knowledge is something that is too large for a single person to hold, and therefore we need to create diverse networks and diverse, I'm talking about like diversity, especially of the minds of the people, you know, so that we can create, you know, the things that eventually can give us a bit of an edge with respect to others, which are these unique things that only happen when we combine, you know, different knowledge. There are some people they're very they're worried about sort of the size of of big companies, especially like the big technology companies, you know, Google and uh, you know Facebook, Apple, Amazon. Uh, uh, but listening to you, I would think like that's that's a good thing that you want you want there to be big companies. Those are big networks. Is that is, is that one implication? Big companies are a good thing, or is that not quite right? I, I see it part of the life cycle. So like the the good thing about companies is that no company lasts forever. Okay, all companies go through like a life cycle. I just finished reading a, a wonderful book, you know, about the history of Polaroid. You know, it's a beautiful history of a company that starts like building kind of like these polarizing films, you know, for the windshields of cars and everything. Right. It grows during the Second World War as a contractor for the for the army, and then as Edwin Lang was desperate to try to kind of like keep everybody employed, you know, they go into this business of instant photography, which is really, 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 really hard. They had to do like tons of patentable technologies to be able to get there. But at some point, land gets old, you know, he moves out of the company, the company doesn't figure out what to do as the digital information ends, and, you know, it, it goes to the other part of the cycle. And I think something similar at some point is going to happen, you know, to all of the companies that now seem indestructible, where they had Amazon, Google, or Facebook, and so forth. They're going to they're gonna go through that cycle. And I think that cycle is good, you know. At some moment, you know, there is a creative push that, that allows, you know, these networks to grow, these networks learn, accumulate lots of knowledge, but as they accumulate knowledge, also they have decreasing returns, you know, to the inclusion of like more people. At some point they become really good at doing what they do, you know, but, they, but it becomes harder for them to innovate and to be creative because they have to develop internal bureaucracies, you know, to deal, you know, with uh, risks and approvals and all of that type of stuff, you know, and then, you know, after a while, there's markets are gonna get disrupted as new entrants you know, that are more flexible to go into the new technologies are going to come in. So I think that having big companies is a sign that there were sectors that were able to grow and mature, but having only big companies would be unhealthy. What you want is little companies growing big, lasting for a while, doing what they do well, and then, you know, going down as new companies come in and figure out what to do in the next technological wave. I've, we've had a, uh, you know, a couple of people. We've had uh, Deirdre McCloskey, uh, Joel Machier, uh from Northwestern talking about sort of why the West, you know, got rich to begin with. Do you have any thoughts on that, especially given your model, sort of how we went from where we were in 1800 till today? They tend to focus more on culture and, I, and, and ideas. Do you have any insights on that? Yeah, I have here one of Moker's books. Just ah, <laughs> I, I have the same book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so exactly. And the first book of his was more about technology. The most recent one is about culture. I think they're both great, to be honest. He's a fantastic economic historian that should be read, you know, even more widely than he already is. You know? uh, but I do think that there are like a few things that, that might have contributed to the, to the rise of the West. I don't think that the rise of the West is kind of like a universal phenomenon. China was very rich before the West. 
and I think they're going to be very rich by the end of the century too. <laughs> you know, they're super ahead right now already. Uh, I was there like last couple of weeks, you know, and, and dude, it's like, like nobody has a chance. <laughs> they're doing great. But, but they have also, of course, their own issues and problems too, you know. Uh, but in the context of the West, I think one of the things that for me is a very transformative period is that I do believe that there is an industrial revolution before the industrial revolution that people fail to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I think the first industrial revolution of the West was not the one that came with steam, was the one that came with the printing press. Mm-hmm. Okay? So when the printing press gets invented in the 1450s, actually it's a very remarkable technology for a few things. First, it's the first industry you know, that allows you to produce a product with almost zero marginal cost in an urban environment. Okay? So before the printing press, cities were kind of like this place where you weren't going to trade some turnips. You know, it was kind of like, like all of the economic activity happened based on land, you know, and the city only existed, you know, as a, as a way to have like some sort of center of, you know, governance and commerce. But with the printing press, all of a sudden, you could make shitloads of money because you have a product of zero marginal cost that you could produce in an urban environment. And evidence of that is that actually printing technology spread like wildfire. In 50 years, printing technology spread to all places of Europe that it was going to spread to. And the number of printers per capita stopped growing after that, you know, because basically the market like radiated, exploded, and then saturated, you know, very quickly because this was a business model that was super scalable, super reproducible, and a lot of people adopted to. And with that first industrial revolution, what happened is that there was a change in the pattern of the production of culture. For instance, you know, one of the things that Elizabeth Einstein, which is one of the historians of printing that I've read a, a lot, uh, says is that. Before printing, the concept of data kind of like did not exist uh, in, in its modern form because data was extremely unreliable. All of the astronomical tables that people produced were transcribed by hand. That meant that not only few people have access to them, that they were full of errors because if you're a monk transcribing a bunch of numbers, you know, overnight with candlelight, you're going to make errors. And the next monk that does it again is going to make errors. You know? And Tycho Brahe and, and, and Johannes Kepler they were able to get to where they got, you know, because they had access to, you know, printed material that was much more reliable. It was also the first time in history that a scientist could have a little library at home of maybe 10, 12 books. And everybody has written a book knows that a book is made of books. You have to read a bunch of books to be able to write your book, you know. But before the printing press, books were so prohibitively expensive that scientists didn't have access to them. So we have looked at historical patterns of cultural production by, by uh, using text mining to like uh, structure data from thousands and thousands of biographies. And you find that when printing gets developed, you have a big discontinuity on the number of globally famous people that we remember, especially associated to the sciences and the arts. So the arts and the sciences are born in the Western world with the spread of printing. Before that, when we had an oral culture, the only people that were famous were politicians and religious leaders. Right. After printing, you know, we go into the world of the arts and the sciences that I think, you know, is the precursor of the later industrial revolution that happens, you know, with Watts and the Scottish Enlightenment and so forth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the printing press to me is a very important turning point, you know, that happened uh, relatively early in the West. And for example, just to have an exception to prove the rule, printing, when it went to the uh, Islamic world, it was forbidden. 
and they forbid printing because they have this tradition that people had to learn the Quran by heart. And if you read a printed copy, you were kind of like cheating. And printing books was forbidden. And that also people have argued that limit their ability to mm -hmm. continue to produce culture at the rate that they were doing because actually the Arab world was very advanced in mathematics and astronomy and many other aspects of culture, you know, during the Middle Ages. But then entering the Renaissance, they start falling behind. It may have been also because they did not adopt it this extremely revolutionary industrial technology, which was printing. Uh, we only have another minute or so, but you, 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 meant, you did mention China. I know one thing you've, you, you, you've sort of looked at is how to sort of predict economic growth, if I have this right. And one way you can do it is sort of looking at what is the capability of a country to produce information, complex information. And if a country has that capability, and they're, but they don't seem to be growing particularly fast, then you know that perhaps in the future they might because they, they do have that, that capability. Do I have that right? Yes, yeah, exactly. So in some way, if it's all about knowledge, then the question for the scientists is how the heck do you measure knowledge? You know? And I think the two things that I've been able to contribute to the scientific literature that, that have proven to be very robust and useful are two independent measures of knowledge that you can do uh, by looking at the things that an economy knows how to make. Okay? Uh, one of these measures is this index of economic complexity or the economic complexity index that allows you to measure the knowledge intensity of an economy based on the mix of products that they're able to export. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, let's say, if Switzerland has more knowledge than Argentina or not, but if I know what products Switzerland can make and I know what products Argentina can make, I know which other countries can make those products and so forth, actually there is a formula that you can use to deduce how much knowledge Switzerland has vis-a-vis -vis Argentina. And the nice thing about that formula is that it predicts a lot of important macroeconomic outcomes. So first, you know, it correlates very strongly with GDP per capita. So countries that have more knowledge are richer. Second, you know, the deviations of that prediction predict future economic growth. So countries that have, you know, too much knowledge per unit of income grow faster. Okay, that's the second prediction. The third is that countries that are knowledge intense tend to be less unequal. You know, so when you're a country that is very knowledge intense, like, you know, Switzerland or Japan, you tend to actually have a relatively low level of income inequality compared to a country that is not knowledge intense, like Peru or Angola. You know, uh, and now a fourth implication that is in a paper that we're, you know, submitting soon is that uh, activities that are more knowledge intense tend to concentrate more in space and would explain why cities are growing so fast and why cities are so important. And the reason why cities are growing so fast is because, you know, the, as the economy becomes more complex, you know, economic activities migrate more intensely to cities because that's the only place that can form the networks that are large enough to contain all of that knowledge. Well, uh, fortunately enough, that, that last comment actually leads me uh, to a question because I usually go on Twitter before these interviews. I said, does anyone have any questions for the guests? And of course, people did have questions for you. And the one of the questions was, uh, considering the role of social capital and social networks in prosperity, what would you tell a mayor who wanted to land Amazon's HQ2, uh, what, what advice would you give them on an economic development strategy that prioritizes those things that you think are, are important for growth? What would you tell a mayor looking to land a, um, Amazon HQ2? It, it, it's, it, it's hard because, you know, like when you think about development, you can think about development of places and development of people. And if there's something that I think a lot of people in economic development uh, would agree on is that it's easier to do development by having people move to develop places than by trying to develop less developed places. Unfortunately, our politics work completely that way around. 
Right. Every major, every governor, every president is associated to a place, not so much to a group of people. You know, they care, you know, about like their city, they care about, you know, their county, they care about, you know, their state. And therefore, they want, you know, their state or their city to be attractive, even though, you know, that might not be the optimal allocation of the capital resources in the wide scope of the economy. You know, so in that context, to me, the question is, you know, well, where is Amazon going to get the best uh, related knowledge that it's going to need to make sure that that headquarter is, you know, really productive and creative? And I would think that they should be picking up places that have all of those related activities already there. So Kendall here next to my tea is actually a pretty good place when it comes to many of the things that Amazon might be interested in doing. You know, I think uh, they're already in Seattle, close to the University of Washington, which is a big place. There is, of course, Silicon Valley. You know, there's another place that has all of that related knowledge. There is Austin, you know, that has been emerging also as a, as a tech hub. But there are places that might want to bring something like that to them, you know. And what we find in the literature is that, in general, when you try to force these connections too strongly, it tends to be detrimental for both the place and the firm. So I, I would definitely much more think about making sure that you get the pieces of Lego that match, you know, instead of kind of like trying to force a piece in a place that doesn't match for the hope that you're going to get spillovers that you're not going to be able to absorb. Right. Uh, la- la- last question, and, and it's hardly a light question, but of course, given my uh, Twitter following, I knew there'd be I knew there'd be a a, a question on Hayek. How, how does your model fit in uh, with Hayek and what he wrote about uh, in- information? Yeah, so like in the use of knowledge in society, which is like Hayek's, of course, most famous paper, you know, it's, it's much more about the ability of the market to be able to you know process information about the supply and demand of goods, so that the production quotas can be decided distributively. I think I, I would agree with that. I do think that for some types of goods, you know, the market is definitely a very smart way of trying to distribute that type of decision making. At the same time, when I'm talking about knowledge, I'm not talking about the knowledge of a price. Okay, I'm not talking about the knowledge of like the availability of supply. You know, I would say that that is information actually. You know, that's even like a message. It's an even subtype of information. When I'm talking about knowledge, I'm talking about like this, you know, tacit capacities that get accumulated in people and get trapped in them, like the ability to play the piano or play basketball or play the violin or the ability to write a book. You know, you can read my book, but learning how to write a book just like that is a little bit more difficult because that knowledge is what's difficult to transmit and and pass on. So in that sense, I would say it's it's quite different because it's more about the embodied knowledge in humans and how that helps us produce information rather than about the distributed information of the price system and how that allows us to allocate production more efficiently. My guest today has been Dr. Cesar Hidalgo, author of Why Information Grows, the Evolution of Order from Atoms to Economies. And I, and I was delighted to hear that you'll have another book out. So please come back, come back on the podcast and that book is published as well. Okay. It will be a couple of years, but I'll be happy to be back. <laughs>